0: In the age of Instagram and social sharing, brick-and-mortar businesses offer a unique advantage that even the biggest and best online platforms can't compete with. On Brick and Mortar Reborn, we talk with business owners and industry experts about what they're seeing work best for brick-and-mortar businesses who aren't just competing with their online counterparts, but thriving in spite of all the options that customers now have. We'll share exactly what you can do to set yourself up for success with an experience that wows your customers and keeps them coming back for more. And now our host, Bobby Maramat. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another
1: edition of Brick and Mortar Reborn. Today, we have a very special guest, Carol Speakerman. She is an internationally recognized authority on retail and brand positioning. Carol,
2: welcome. Hey, great to be with you, Bobby.
1: Absolutely. Likewise. Thanks for joining. Uh, if you don't mind giving the you know listeners a quick, maybe more in depth bio about what you're what you're doing and and how you're helping retailers.
2: I actually work with a crazy diverse group of retail stakeholders, including retailers, but also brand marketers and tech companies and agencies and others. And my focus is on helping them relevantly position the great stuff they're already doing. And the cornerstone of my work is. My are my retail trajectories. And these are themes that I'm constantly creating and tracking and mapping across all kinds of categories, borders, business models, and touch points. So they inform my speaking engagements, the one-day workshops that I conduct with these companies. And they really are just uniting all of those stakeholders and creating common calls to action for wherever they sit in retail. it's They're meant to address that full diversity of all those stakeholders and all of the different channels that retail's operating now.
1: And what's, uh, you know, in the in the past few years as you've been working with different clients, what have you seen kind of change, uh, you know, in the space and, and you know, maybe guidance that you're giving that's maybe different than what you were doing before?
2: Are, are you talking about like changes in consumer behavior or changes in client work? Really
1: in client work. Yeah, in client work.
2: Well, the biggest changes are, uh, well, there's several, first of all, the emergence of all of these new stakeholders. You know, when you talked about retail before, it was understood that you were talking about retailers and people who sell to them. But now you do have these tech companies and service providers and solution providers and so many others that are becoming part of this big retail ecosystem. So my client base has has, started to really reflect that full diversity of retail stakeholders. And that's why I did see the need to start uniting some higher truths, if you will, that will resonate across all of those different points of view.
1: Awesome. You know, for our listeners, I think one of the questions that comes up often is, what are some of the biggest changes that you've seen in customer-consumer behavior, maybe over the past few years, but also specifically maybe pinpointing also, you know, what's happening in the last, you know, two, three months uh, during these pandemic days?
2: What's so interesting, Bobby, is how those two concepts, you know, the before and the after, how they can be synergistic, but also how they can be at odds with one another. And so I think it's helpful to talk about the overarching shifts that frame all of those different behavioral changes, you know, to sort of make sense of it. So to me, there are three big shifts that are at work that frame, that are sort of the umbrella for all of the individual behaviors. The first shift is one from convenience to safety. You know, it turns out that all those convenience options that retailers were cooking up before the corona crisis have now become safety enablers. So they're all the same, you know, whether it's drive-through, home delivery, curbside pickup, site-to-store, contactless transactions. Now, the retailers that set all of those so-called convenience options up before the corona crisis are faring better now because they're perceived as safety enablers. So it's been sort of a happy accident for retailers that, that had already done that work. And the second shift is more truly behavioral, which is a shift from browsing to intentional shopping. You know, those sports shopping, if you will, is kind of <laughs> off the table for now. And these days, the impulse shopping and the treasure hunt environments that were driving so much of retail before, they can create tension. You know, people are like, "Ah, I don't want to browse. I don't want to be in here too long. And that completely changes everything from merchandising strategies to entire business models. Because, for example, when you talk about reopening malls, the premise of a mall is completely at odds with the shift because malls are about browsing and taking your time. So malls are not geared for this new focus to destination shopping, which isn't to say they can't be, but that's something that I think some of these mall operators might want to think about. And then finally, a shift from fill-in trips to stock-up trips. And this is one of those shifts that, again, was a little bit of a happy accident because retailers were already looking at this. But the data already shows that shoppers are going to stores less frequently, but they're buying more when they do go. So before every retailer was going after those fill-in trips, that's how dollar stores got on the radar because dollar stores were doing such a good job of grabbing those fill-in trips that add up over time and that other retailers were trying to you know, capitalize on. But now it's a little bit of a, there's some friction there because with these economic stresses and job losses, shoppers want to shop less frequently and they want to stock up, but in some cases they can only buy so much when they do. So retailers are going to have to start looking at that trade-off between trip frequency and value. And again, I'd have to give dollar stores the, the, a nod here that they're doing a pretty good job of tying that together to where people feel like they're getting a really good value when they do go.
1: Do you feel some of these changes are you know kind of longer term? Do you think this is just, we're going to see this for a period of time? What are your thoughts around that?
2: Well, you can't really take a one-size-fits-all approach to it or, you know, one one single answer for everything because there are so many individual behaviors. But in general, you know, this uh, fantasy of returning to normal, I don't think we're going to get anywhere close to that until there's a vaccine and people have that safety. They feel that safety in terms of shopping and returning to some of those old behaviors. But I think plenty of these changes are going to be ingrained. But the big takeaway, one thing I tell my clients all the time is that most changes in retail are not a light switch. You know, this is gone and this is in. It's the transition periods. And it's it's a game of managing those transitions is where the retailers win. So who can manage through the transitions when business may be, you know, a lot less than it was before? Who can manage the transition to online shopping and then who can sort of groove back into some of the lapses in behavior to where shoppers go back to some of those old habits. So it really is going to be a balancing act.
1: Do you think some of that is, uh, you know, as we've been kind of talking to retailers and actually even restauranteurs, um, you know, part of what there's been a little bit of a kind of a double click or focus on has been the buzzword, of course, that that is not used as much anymore, but omni-channel, right? And omni-channel opportunities and experiences. What do you feel retailers and, and even restaurateurs can learn from this too, but get wrong when it comes to creating these, you know, offline, online experiences, omni channel experiences?
2: I hate to say they're getting it wrong, but I know one thing that they're struggling with and that doesn't get talked about. I don't really hear anybody fully addressing it, is that as particularly for multi-category retailers, you know, those that sell groceries and apparel or general merchandise. Before the corona crisis, a lot of these multi-category retailers had a brilliant idea. Let's start selling groceries because then we can get shoppers into the stores more frequently. So you had retailers really taking a page from Walmart more than anything because that was wa- that's one of Walmart's secret sauce ingredients is <laughs> they have that grocery business and that drives more frequent trips. And then therefore, that increases the chances that shoppers will pick up a high margin item while they're in there picking up that carton of milk. Well, that's why you have Target doubling down on grocery. That's why you had dollar stores and others really focusing on that business. But here's a dirty little secret. Online, those businesses are not always connected. And retailers tell me they're trying to fix that right now. But as it is now, when you go online, usually that grocery business operates in a completely separate operating model. So the recommendation engines, all of that—it's—they're not translating that frequency in those lower-margin essential categories into sales of the higher-margin discretionary categories. So that's a let's just call that an opportunity (laughs) right now that uh, retailers need to fix as so much of the business shifts online.
1: Do you feel like those businesses, uh, let's say, take the targets or the, the WalMarts as an example? Do you feel like uh, the online strategy is going to be just as strong in those businesses uh, and those segments of the business as it is more kind of traditional shopping, walking in? I'm walking in to buy my groceries and I'm going to pick up a high margin item. Can I make that create that same reality on, on an online world where I can't walk into the stores right now?
2: That's the challenge. Right now, you can't. I can't say that I can I know of a retailer right now that's really got that nailed to where they're creating those pathways between frequently purchased categories and less frequently purchased higher margin categories. That's why when you see some of these big increases in sales you think, "Hey, boy, that retailer's doing really well." Well, what are the what are the margins on that business? So many retailers right now are struggling from a margin perspective because some of those category disconnects in the digital world. But I do think that they're working on remedying it
1: there's also another group of you know retailers that has been really kind of quick to try to adopt new strategies to make sure that they're still you know relevant during these days and with that there's a bunch of things you know that you could do are there best practices and i know it's it's not cookie cutter for every industry and every type of store environment but are there best practices that retailers can implement today
2: one of the mindset changes i think would benefit retailers is to operate as though nothing's going to change and really think of this environment that we're in now, not as an anomaly, but as the ultimate stress test. And then that way, they're going to be prepared for whatever's next, whether it's a second wave of the coronavirus, whether it's, you know, something else that's unforeseen. And one thing too, I would say that retailers need to realize that when they make these promises of these convenience or safety options, however you want to look at it, that shoppers then start thinking of that as being part of your operating model. So retailers can't just shut things down and say, oh, well, we're experiencing surges, so we're not gonna have home delivery for another month. That really is going to compromise their credibility. So retailers really need to own their story and they need to own their capabilities. And they have to understand that consumers look at all of those as part of their arsenal and they they have accountability for continuing to, to have them operate or else you you know you have a lot of frustration out there. Also too, one thing that retailers need to realize that's actually exciting and positive is that through this change in behavior and this all of this disruption, shoppers have relinquished relinquished a lot of control and this is a trust building opportunity because retailers have suddenly been entrusted to pick out products that shoppers would rather pick out themselves under normal conditions. They've been allowed to make substitutions. They've been entrusted to maintain safety in stores. So the opportunity here is that if retailers nail all of that, then consumers should continue to trust them to make those decisions and to relinquish control. It's not a small thing because once that trust builds, you know, you just can't put a price on it and it does help your business for the long term and it allows you to take more control of your business.
1: Another part that, you know, we've been talking to several clients lately that they've been able to, to take a little bit more of a strategic approach on, you know, picking the right products, even once they do open up their locations, because as they have, you know, a wider spectrum of products, maybe that they're selling online, they've been seeing, you know, uh, you know, 70, 60, you know, 60 or 70 percent kind of focused on a certain segment of, of products. So it's going to help them get to a place where they can, you know, create better experiences in-store in the sense of bringing in the right inventory, the right types of inventory, and using that data to, to make, uh, you know, their in-store experiences even stronger as a result.
2: Absolutely. They really have sort of a downtime right now to make, to work out all of those bugs. And we were already in what I was, what I call the digital rethinking of physical retail so retailers have been swinging their attention back to their stores as they should once they realize that stores are a critical success factor for their digital businesses. But now, to your point, I think there's an opportunity to take that a step further and be willing to completely upend everything if needed in order to make that store shopping experience more relevant on the other side of this crisis.
1: Kara, what what are some uh, you know you, you've probably you know seen a lot of brands and clients. Uh, try to whip up, you know, in-store experiences uh, that connect with their customers. What are some of the best that you've seen?
2: Well, that has to be sort of a before and after story too, doesn't it? Because (laughs) uh, I'm not, I'm certainly not making as many store excursions and uh, I even do uh, retail tours and things in, in major cities that have been put on hold for the time being. So I'm not seeing as much as I saw before, but before Corona crisis, I was always enamored with fairly low-tech environments, you know, uh, boutiques in Paris like Merci and Colette, which is no longer with us, unfortunately, that just always had c- really creative shopping environments, low-tech, but that really encouraged you to just move around and and experience and, you know, wow, where did the time go? Those kinds of environments. But now I think we have to be a lot more practical and look at, just as a retail watcher, who's nailing the basics and delivering on those promises. And in that arena, I'd have to give props to Walmart. I think, you know, they've always had this customer centricity and you can think of it as being tried, but right now it really shows through. I mean, it shows right now we know you can just tell which retailers are just kind of scrambling to make up for lost time and very self-centered about it and which ones really do have the customer at the heart of what they're doing. And I think Walmart has really emerged as one of those retailers in some of the good works that they're doing, but also in the way that they're trying to keep all of those pins in the air and keep all of those convenience options rolling and just make it easy for customers to shop the way they want to shop from a convenience standpoint. And now back to the earlier point, from a safety standpoint.
1: Absolutely. Uh, right now, a lot of, you know, kind of smaller brands also want to learn from these bigger brands like Walmart uh, and others. Are there key takeaways for, you know, the smaller brands and, and what they can, that, that same sort of, um, you know, the parts that make really Walmart strong and other other experiences like Nike really strong. How can, how can smaller retailers really implement those within their locations?
2: When you mention a, a brand like Nike, I think the big story, the big takeaway for Nike is, something I talk a lot about which is diversification the need to be have a diversified business Nike yes is a big brand but they are a very they operate diverse business models so instead of you know they departed from that idea of being just a wholesale brand you know that was sold through other retailers and they started building up their direct to consumer business and really being mindful of not saying hey we just want our brand everywhere let's just do this do that But pulling it back sometimes, reevaluating, reevaluating wholesale relationships, and having the courage and making the investment to invest in their direct to consumer outreach, even to the point of showing the hand to Amazon and saying, you know what, we don't want to empower your platform anymore. We'll do it on our own platform. Thank you very much. So I think that's one thing we can learn from Nike. And yes, you can take a page from Walmart once again, I think diversification is a big point here. They're moving in a lot of different directions. They're not trying to force customers into one way of shopping. They are presenting choices. So that's the big takeaway there. You have to present choices. And even the good news is, even if you're a smaller player now, so much of what's happening in retail is happening through partnerships. You don't have to own everything. You don't have to always go DIY. You can partner with some of these nimble surface and solution providers to expand your portfolio of options and choice for your customers. So I think that's the big takeaway there is don't try to force customers into your way of doing business. Always think in terms of providing choice.
1: As brands think about, you know, another thing that's, that's uh, you know, come up here uh, in recent times is brands trying to really figure out who their customer is, right? Starting from that in the sense of, you know, not being uh, everything to everyone. Are there, is there, you know, any sort of guidance you can give retailers on on figuring that portion out? And I, again, I know it's different for every, every environment, but are there kind of high level um, takeaways that retailers can take to, to learn and build their ideal customer profile?
2: It well, it is a balancing act because one thing that we're on the precipice of in some ways, through, and I may digress a little bit here, but I talk a lot about what I call marketplace mayhem. That's one of my trajectories, which is that these online marketplaces have exploded to such a degree that we are on a precipice of, of a being in danger of everyone carrying the same stuff, including all of the same categories. So you have to think about what your point of view is. And we are I think we are in danger in some cases of retailers losing their point of view. Because if everybody sells all the same stuff, and whether you're an office retailer or whatever, even these category killers using these online marketplaces to expand into all kinds of categories that are not core to their business, then I think you're in the danger zone. So you do see retailers, which is which is a good thing, pulling back on that just come and get it mentality, yeah. You know, come come sell on our marketplaces. We're selling everything from groceries to cosmetics. You just, it's all there. And instead pulling that back a little bit and saying, we have to stand for something. We can't just be this endless aisle marketplace, especially in the digital digital world where price comparisons are just a click away. If everybody has all the same stuff, then it's just a race to the bottom on price. So having that point of view and saying no to some of those partnerships is gonna gonna be the the next phase.
1: Are there technologies you know that you've seen uh, as you've kind of you know get kind of worked with different clients that are being adopted at a faster pace than you expected initially?
2: This is one area technology is one area where the corona crisis has made marked a really big shift because before we were seeing all kinds of exciting you know, conversations and tests being run on augmented and virtual reality, back to that concept of the digital rethinking of physical retail. Because retailers suddenly woke up and realized that their online environments were much more exciting than their stores. And shoppers were so used to the online experience that the stores were starting to look a little musty and like they hadn't gotten enough attention. So there was a lot of excitement on that front in terms of how we can create all these uh, technological bells and whistles that make the engagement in the in-store environment so much more, such such a more rich experience. Well, now here comes the Corona crisis and again, People don't want to linger in a store. They don't want to put on those, you know, Oculus (laughs) glasses (laughs) and walk around and mosey around. You know, we're just not in that world right now. So I believe that those types of technologies are going to be put on the back shelf for the time being. And it's going to be about focusing more on like artificial intelligence, more practical technologies that help retailers do some of the things that you mentioned earlier, like inventory planning, uh, data gathering data, parsing, acting on the data. So I think artificial intelligence is going to be the name of the game for the short term. And then on the other side of the corona crisis, whatever that is, then we can start revisiting some of those gee whiz, you know, cool in-store technologies that were put on the back burner.
1: Talking about, you know, artificial intelligence, of course, uh, it's it's been spoken about a lot. Are there specific areas that you think are going to come out of? In the next few years, like focus areas on the artificial intelligence side that retailers are going to either need to adopt or want to adopt?
2: It's such a vast world. The best advice I would give really is to look in terms of those partnerships because there are so many companies out there right now that are so laser focused on AI and the good news is that retailers are more open to partnerships and they do need to start looking outside for some of these solutions and not thinking that everything has to be built in-house. So keeping that open, that openness and talking with the folks that are really doubling down on that is going to be the first order of business. But of course, along with that, once they do forge these partnerships, what I call platform partnerships, some of those Partnerships will dissolve over time. So I tell companies that provide artificial intelligence, hey, you may be their source now, but then they might take it in-house a couple of years from now. So there's going to be this constant shift between what I call buy, build, or bridge. And that's going to be the big question. What makes sense to acquire? What makes sense to build internally? And what makes sense to bridge through partnership? Buy Builder Bridge is a big question, and you know, you can do entire day strategic sessions just on that one question, but I think it's worth asking.
1: Well, thank you, Carol. That was a wealth of information. Any last thoughts uh, to share with our listeners?
2: Well, one thing I like to, especially as we keep talking about the corona crisis, you know, the elephant in the room. One thing I like to remind everybody, and one of my top trajectories, is that shaping is the new responding. I think too often we keep talking about retailers as though they're scrambling and as though, as though their entire business is about reacting and you know trying to keep up with what consumers are doing. Now, that may be true for some retailers and it may be true just in some incidences, but armed with all of these new tools, with these partnerships, with all of this great data, retailers are in a position to change and shape consumer behavior. They are not just reacting to it. And I think that changes the calculus on the retail side, thinking, what can we shape? What are our shaping tools? And also for all those other stakeholders, what does our business look like if we believe that retailers are in the business of shaping behavior or how that Capability. How can we give them that capability rather than making this assumption that they're always responding and reacting?
1: Carol, if, if one of our listeners wants to get, you know, a hold of you or has more questions, how can they get a hold of you?
2: You can reach out to me directly. I would love to hear from you at Carol at retail.com It's not spelled like it sounds, but I'm sure it will be in print somewhere so that they can see that. And also on Twitter at retail Expert. XPERT and you can visit my website where my podcasts are all housed press media speaking calendar all of that at speakermanretail.com.
1: Awesome Carol. Again, thank you for your time today. I know our listeners are going to appreciate, you know, listening to this and again, thanks for all your guidance here.
2: Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's great speaking with you, Bobby.
1: You too. You too. Have a wonderful day.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Brick and Mortar Reborn. To find the resources mentioned in this show and detailed show notes, head over to brickandmortareborn.com.